welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. as I noted at the beginning, we are in the midst of the Epiphany season. And as the Epiphany season is, is that time from Christmas before Lent in which um, the lectionary tends to follow the early parts of Jesus' life and ministry. And in the lectionary readings for this year, it has us for the next few weeks settling into the first great full teaching of Jesus, what is commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And this week we begin with the beginning of that sermon, looking at what historically has been called the Beatitudes. And I think it is important if you're going to engage with the Sermon on the Mount to start with the start of the sermon. Because it provides for us, I think, a framework through which we must then understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And in that framework, as as you'll see, it, it in many ways, I think, flips some of the common interpretations and uses of the Sermon on the Mount. As I prepare for the next few sermons, I've been reading about the Sermon on the Mount, reading commentaries, listening to lectures, and just kind of engaging with, with the text. And what I find is interesting is that you have different uses of the Sermon on the Mount, and I find that also as I engage with those who would be considered very progressive Christian scholars and those who would be considered very fundamentalist or even legalistic Christians, as I engage with both, they both love the Sermon on the Mount for different reasons. But interestingly, they both interpret it in a very similar way. They interpret it that it is first and foremost a great moral and ethical teaching of Jesus. Of what we must do if we are to call ourselves followers of Christ. As we walk through this over the next few weeks, there is profound ethics in this sermon. But it's not first and foremost about what we must do to prove ourselves to be Christians. And so I want in this sermon, as it's kind of laying the groundwork, as Jesus did with the Beatitudes, is to try to quickly look at a few major general themes with regard to the Beatitudes, and then break down quickly each of the Beatitudes. This will be a little bit different sermon. It might be a little bit more information heavy, but I think it's important because then it, through, the, through understanding how this is kind of framed and structured, it helps us better understand what Jesus is getting at. 
And so first, a few general points. I apologize, this will probably seem a little bit more like a, uh, a lecture than a sermon in some ways, but... So we look at this as a whole, at the Beatitudes, you need to see it in its context. And this is immediately following, not, not immediately, but it's, it's after Jesus had, had called his first followers to himself. And then his message is summarized by Matthew as repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so this is a summary of the ministry and message of Jesus. And then the fleshing out of what that looks like comes immediately following because Matthew gives accounts of some of the healings that Jesus was doing. Physical manifestations of the reality of his proclamation, which is the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then it moves right into the Sermon on the Mount. And I think... That in that understanding, that first and foremost, Jesus is flipping all of the other empires on their head and revealing what this kingdom actually looks like that is at hand. Because repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand means very little when everybody's running around with their own version of what the kingdom of heaven should look like. Jesus is laying out what what the kingdom of heaven or what the reality of God's reign on earth what that what that would look like and in that he goes and he starts calling all of these these different groups it would seem as as blessed some translations say happy These are really poor translations. But even now in our current culture, blessed is not much better than happy because I'm not really into social media at all, but I know people like do that like hashtag blessed because you got like a free cappuccino. And so it really kind of cheapens the word and it becomes just like happy. And and that's not like this is not hashtag blessed. Blessed, mercurios is the Greek word that is translated uh, blessed. I'm going to edit that out of the, the, the podcast. Um, but, so, so, but that is translated blessed. But it carries with it this idea of, of a state of wholeness, peace, and joy. It's tied to the term shalom in the Old Testament. And actually tied to the concept of soterios, or salvation, in the New Testament. And we see that that which the Roman Empire would view as cursed, which is the opposite of blessed. Unfavored. Those whom no one would expect to take positions of prominence in the empire. He takes those and flips the understanding of blessing. And flips the whole concept of the way that the disciples and the people would have viewed things. And if you notice in this, that there's actually kind of bookends to the Beatitudes. 
Verse 3 and verse 10 both say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A little bit of Greek geekiness in this is that these two are written in the present tense. The rest of the Beatitudes are all in the future tense. And they're saying the same thing again. Present tense, those are the ones who are receiving the kingdom of heaven. Future tense, will be, will be, will be, will be. Those are the ones who are receiving the kingdom of heaven. And this bookending, as you read it together, is actually showing that this is not different groups of people. Just finding a handful of different segments that Jesus is marking as, as blessed, that they will receive something in the end. But instead, he's speaking of different aspects of one group of people. The people who inherit the kingdom of heaven. And also, while we're on the Greek grammar real quickly, is all of these are in the indicative mood. None of these are written in the imperative mood. Until I was forced to study Greek, I would have known, I would have had no idea what the heck I was just saying at that moment. The indicative mood is a a proclamation about something. An imperative mood is a command to do something. It's imperative, you must do this. See, these are written in the Greek in the indicative mood. They are not commands to be a certain way or to do anything, but they are proclamations about those who will inherit the kingdom. A lot of the sermons that I have heard on the Beatitudes take this in a way of saying, like, so you really need to figure out how to work on being more poor in spirit. How to be more meek. I, the one uh, sermon I, I kind of just listened to a little bit, is, the preacher was saying over and over again that the Beatitudes should be your attitude. And I'm like, no, that's not what Jesus is doing here. But, but also you look that throughout church history, a lot of the monastic movement was taking these things and saying, I need to make myself this. And then I will be blessed. That's not what the Greek is saying because that's not what Jesus is saying. And finally, one last general note. If you notice in verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he, or he Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Jesus was escaping the crowds to go up to the mountain. And his disciples came and sat with him. Jesus' primary audience here is the disciples. Which is not how this is usually depicted. Like all the Jesus picture books, it's Jesus going up on the mountain so he can have the high ground and preach to the masses. All the Jesus movies, they always have this in it. That's what he's doing. My favorite is Life of Brian, where Jesus has such a large crowd that the people in the back can't hear him. And they mistake, blessed are the peacemakers for 
blessed are the cheese makers. And so, but that is not what's happening here. Sure, the crowds likely followed and the crowds were there overhearing. But Jesus was speaking to those whom he had already accepted as his followers. He's saying, if you are my follower, this is you. So that's a few kind of overview aspects of this passage that help understand and interpret the nature of the Beatitudes. And now I just want to quickly go through and look at each of these points and make a couple of points on a few of them. So verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Interestingly, in Luke, he has just blessed are the poor. And I think that in the midst of that, this, we need to understand that poor in spirit is more than, but not less than, poverty itself. Because to be poor in spirit is to be in a place of poverty, not just externally, but at your complete inward being. And what does it mean to be in poverty? It means that you have no resources to pull yourself out of the situation that you're in. There's no longer place for self-reliance. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. See, it's the poor peasant that is the one who longs for a gracious king to come and overthrow the current system. The rich don't want that because they're afraid they're going to lose their stuff. It's the poor that long for revolution because they know that they're in a place in which they can't get themselves out of the situation unless a good ruler comes and flips the script for them. In verse 4, it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. When he's speaking of those who mourn, he's not just talking about those who, who are melancholy. They just kind of like walk around like goth and are just depressed all the time. Like, he's not talking about that. He's talking about those who mourn or lament the current destruction and perversion of what God intended good. And can see this because what he says here about being comforted and the use of the term that he's using ties back to Isaiah 61, which it speaks of those who are mourning the destruction of Israel, that one day they will be comforted. Blessed are those who see the perversion and destruction of our world and are burdened and distressed by it because they know there's little they can do about it. Because theirs is the kingdom, and in the kingdom, all of that will be overthrown. Blessed are they that weep over the deterioration of our bodies through sickness and disease. Blessed are they that lament war and corruption. 
Blessed are they that mourn the stillborn child and the adult that's been abused and manipulated. Blessed are they that weep over injustice and perversion of God's word or the destruction of anything that God had created good. Because even though the fallen corruption persists, remember this is in the future tense. It may not fully come now, but when the kingdom fully arrives, we will be comforted. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Some translates, translations translate this, blessed are the humble. I don't think that's a good translation because meekness is, it, the, the word translated meekness is not describing a virtue. It's describing a position of powerlessness. Inability. It's almost word for word going along in alignment with Psalm 37, where it says that the meek will be blessed because they wait on the Lord for vengeance. And then it says, and they will inherit the land. Jesus expands this and says the earth. It's the meek who are blessed because they realize they have no power to take things into their own hands and can only wait and trust in the Lord. And then verse 6, it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I love this one. This is such a hopeful passage. Because you hunger and thirst for what you long for, but you don't have. Thanks be to God that Jesus didn't say, blessed are the righteous because they have achieved what they desired. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Which means you and I aren't there yet. And sometimes despise what comes out of us. But we long for that day where we will be made right. Quickly, just a couple more notes so that we can move along. But in verse 7, it says, blessed are the merciful. And as you look at this, it's, it's those who show mercy are those who recognize that they need mercy. We see this in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus, one of his favorite passages in all of Scripture that he quotes multiple times is Hosea 6.6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. See, for the one who desires God, desires mercy because it's only through mercy that one would desire God. Then it says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And when we read pure in heart, it's different, different ways you might think of it, but this is not talking about a, a, a perfect purity of innocence, because then no one would be blessed. It's actually 
and tied more to, in, in the Old Testament, this idea of a pure heart, an upright heart. It's connected to the idea of a singular devotion to God, speaking in context of those who have not fallen into idolatry. Kind of synonymous with an undivided heart. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Or, Or cheesemakers, depends on how you hear it. But they shall be called sons of God. And this is interesting because this is not how you establish a new kingdom with a bunch of peacemakers. Like, if you want a revolution, you don't bring the Peace Corps with you. And this is bookending, they're right in the midst of this tension because that ain't how Rome exerts its power. And then in their own people, there's the rising move of the zealots saying, this is the moment where we've got to rise up and we've got to take this thing by force. But blessed are those who desire peace, well-being for both sides and not war, are the sons of God, because we have a God that has not come in vengeance, but to bring peace. Peace to those who apart from grace were enemies of God. And finally, in verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he reiterates this. Blessed are you when others revile you. And what's interesting is the way he closes this out. So if you notice, he keeps using over and over the third person plural, they, 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 until the very end, and he moves to the second person plural, you. Making all that he had just said personal to them. Personal to the disciples. Which means for those of us who are disciples of Christ, personal to each and every one of us. And he's saying that those who represent this radical reversal of the kingdom of God that is completely at odds at the, at the system and the, the, the rules of the games that we have created for ourselves. That because of that, many will hate you. It says, persecuted for righteousness sake. Not persecuted because you're a jerk. I always say, Christians, we need to know that a lot of times people hate you because you're just a jerk. (laughs) No, for righteousness sake. But when he says this, he's not talking about self-righteousness. But righteous in the sense of right relation to God that comes by recognition of one's state as he is described. And we see that this righteousness sake is qualified again in verse 11 where he then uses the term on my account. Those who re-face anger 
for radical reliance on the grace of God and the gospel. Which you might think, why would anybody hate you for the gospel? And the thing is, 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 is it seems like that would not be the case. But I've found that everybody loves grace until grace is shown to those whom they don't believe should receive grace. And then the preaching of the gospel begins to be wishy-washy or watered down or heresy. And most love Jesus until Jesus refuses to be who they want Jesus to be. And we saw it in Jesus' life. We see it in the life of the disciples. But it's important to know the persecution that he is speaking of is not persecution because you live more morally than other people. It's persecution because you are singularly devoted to Christ and are unashamed of his gospel. And his grace. Finally, in closing, we have the first imperative in Jesus' sermon. Verse 12. Rejoice and be glad. It's the first imperative that we have. That when we see and accept what is true about us in the indicative, that our blessedness and our inheritance of the kingdom of God that is all grace, accepting our inability, our poverty, Mourning the state of our world and ourselves, our meekness, our powerlessness, hungering for righteousness that we do not have, rooted in mercy, a heart directed toward Christ and seeking peace and reconciliation instead of destroying our adversaries. When we acknowledge the reality of the gospel, lay down our false facades of power, ability, and importance, and point to a radical reality of grace, many will be infuriated. Infuriated because we're not playing according to the rules of the world's games. Angered because not willing to follow the agenda set by whatever side. And yet in the midst of that description of what it looks like to be a, a disciple within the coming kingdom of heaven, Jesus commands us, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is in heaven. And notice a subtly of that little in. The reward is not heaven. He's not saying rejoice and be glad because one day you will have a disembodied existence in some cloud space and be you know, happy in this kind of utopian reality. No. It says in heaven. As in, your reward is coming from that space of God's full presence and reign, and it is coming from God. It is not going to manifest itself or come through those who are on earth right now trying to play God. And so, we start the great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, with the Beatitudes. An indicative proclamation of blessing upon those called to Christ in spite of the fact 
that we are actually what those around us would pity are called cursed. Jesus declares all of us blessed because his call is by grace and not our own warrant. In the beginning of his sermon on the mount tells all those who have been called by Christ that we are blessed. But it also tells us that in our blessed state, that means that we are the ones who have nothing to offer, have no power, no righteousness to call our own, are the ones who are left utterly dependent upon his grace and his mercy. And yet, we have the Marcurius, the blessedness of peace and joy, knowing that in him we will inherit the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God, in which all wrongs will be made right, all mourning will be made to joy, all suffering turned to celebration, where hunger is satisfied, weeping turned to celebration, and justice is overrun by justice, violence and war is replaced with the reign of peace. We rejoice in our blessedness even in the face of the cursing from all around, knowing that through all of us, apart from God's grace, we are all poor, powerless, cursed, and yet will be declared sons and daughters of the Most High, made righteous before a holy God, and welcomed into the royal courts of our conquering King, Lord, and Savior, Jesus Christ. My brothers and sisters, how truly blessed are those who by the grace of God will be received into his glorious kingdom. Amen. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. Joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue